Well, it turns out that people really like conversations. So in this week's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Jessica Kapp, a geoscience professor here at the University of Arizona, and we talk about everything from camping in Tibet to getting rained on at the Grand Canyon to starting your own podcast. So, without further ado, here's episode 26 with Dr. Jessica Kapp. I'm Dr. Ryan Strait, Assistant Professor of Educational Technology at the University of Arizona, and this is The New Professor. That's yeah, the the clicker thing. Yeah, because that I was like that's because I was trying to figure out when I first was doing it, and I would see the you know I'd mess up, and I'm like I need to remember to go back there. Sure. Because you hear like, you hear some podcasts where they like oh we need to edit that in post. Right. You know, and then they don't. And then they don't. <laughs> and you hear it like, in the it's episode. It's embarrassing. You know? It's kind of funny. So I'm like I need to you know, like mess up and. Uh, yep. Like that, and then you just look at the waveforms. There you go. Totally blown out right there. It's an audio to visual. Transition. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Teaching yourself audition is the is the fun part yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, so we're we're back here at Harvel, um, ODL's podcast space and video space and video space. I love this space. I know. I love it too. I'm. I so want to use the green screen. I, I want to use it, but I do, I don't have. I have no idea what I would use it for. I just want to use it. I totally do. As a geologist, I can oh, picture yeah. all the places that would be behind me, and I could just put my hand up and point at something like the top of Mount Everest. You'd or... be like, and now we're in a cave. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like magic. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so, yeah, so we're back here um, with uh, ODL Space, and this week I am speaking with Jessica Cap. Hello. Hello. Um, so, as per my usual, um, I will let you... Introduce yourself a little bit. Oh my gosh. I don't have a bio for you. Yeah, I always feel so much <laughs> pressure when this this part because like what do you say that doesn't sound super arrogant but also doesn't sound like really boring? <laughs> I think you're, I, it's okay to sound super arrogant. <laughs> um, so I will just say that I am a, a professor of practice here on campus in the geosciences department. So I teach a lot of geoscience classes, primarily to non-science majors. That's my bread and butter. So I teach a giant general education course for non-science majors about the earth, which is really fun because I love talking about the earth. That's cool. Um, And then I also am the director of undergraduate studies in our department. So I work a lot with our team on figuring out how to make the undergrad experience the best it can be. So we talk about curriculum and class Mm -hmm. offerings and um, who's going to teach what and all those great things. Um, and then I'm also a, a writer, so I try to write at times. I have a book that I've written, and we'll talk about that later. But um, And a mom and a wife and all of those great things, so a lot going on. <laughs> uh, yes, don't we all? Yes. Um, and it was actually, we first met, and it was, neither one of us really realized it until we right. got in the studio this Today. morning, um, that we met in the faculty fellows program, because That's you're right. a fellow. That's right. And I'm a fellow. Yeah, you're a fellow at South Campus. That's right. And I am a faculty fellow at the Transfer Student Center. And we have a lot of transfer students in geosciences, it turns out. So it's kind of a nice connection. And that reminds me, we need to talk after the pod. Sure. Uh, because there's some stuff that we want to do and connect with the Transfer Center. Sure. Um, some events 
in Lima. Absolutely. You know, we yeah. have to get people from, we have to like figure out buses and stuff because yeah. people are in like Yuma and Douglas. And, yeah. Well, don't despair. We just took three different centers plus geologists from Pima Community College to the Grand Canyon this past weekend mm. as a, part of the faculty fellows program. So we had about 40 people all trek up to the Grand Canyon on Friday afternoon and we camped for two nights. Huh. And some of us hiked into the canyon and some explored the rim. Uh, it was awesome. Last time I was there, it poured. Oh, that's not awesome. We were right. We were like <laughs> literally halfway between like stopping points, like where you could get find shelter. Right. We were literally right in the middle. Oh no! <laughs> we ran to the gift shop. Yeah, I think it was North Rim. Oh, you were on the North Rim. I think. I, I, yeah, maybe. yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but we were just. Soaked. I mean, we're just like, oh, this guy's so pretty. And then, oh, wait. Uh, and it just yeah. opened up. Yep. That's not fun. That's it's not fun. But otherwise, it's an amazing place. If you go when the oh, weather's yeah. perfect, like it was this past weekend, oh, my goodness. It's life-changing. It was. I I never felt so small. Yeah. As totally. I did when I was looking. And I didn't realize. I don't know why I thought there would be, but I didn't realize there's no, like, guardrails. Oh, anywhere. a lot of places there aren't. I know. And I'm like, you could just... Like there, there's the Grand Canyon right in front of me, like right yes. at my feet. And it happens right every year. Accidentally, people go right oh, over yeah. the edge, you know, leaning for their baseball hat gets blown out with the wind and they reach for it and they fall. There's a whole, Taking a selfie. Yeah. There's a book <laughs> in the gift shop that's called Death in the Grand Canyon. And it's all the stories of all the different ways people have died in the Grand Canyon. And a lot of them are those types of stories that are really sad. Um, and others, you know, are more extreme. They're river rafting and things right. that happen that are a little more extreme. But Unfortunately, I think the majority of people who die there, it's not a helicopter or a raft. It's slipped off the edge. That's you right. Know? Yeah. I know, that, was, that just shocked me when I saw it. Yeah. It's like, this seems like it would be not illegal, but like maybe against some sort of policy or something. I don't know. It just felt weird. but It is a little weird. <laughs> then again, you can go out and hike anywhere you like in this world, and there's not going to be a guardrail. So on this some level, you know. We don't need training wheels. That's right. <laughs> okay. So speaking of... of the Grand Canyon in yeah. geosciences. Yeah, um, yeah. I was I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your background because I I realized that um, see, we have a term like I, I do a lot with instructional design and things mm -hmm. like that. And we have a term that is often I mean sometimes it's a compliment, sometimes not. But um, this accidental designer, sure, where people you know go into one field and they realize they really like designing the things that the people in the field use, right? And they you know they go that direction, so they become an accidental designer and you yeah. see that with instructional designers sure. um, sometimes but um i realized that that was kind of how we both got to where we are now and you you were telling me about your background i realized it's accidental scientist that's right kind of yeah so absolutely happen. yeah so um i you know grew up with a very uh, creative father he was a musician and a entertainer my whole life that's what i wanted for myself was something creative i used i wrote from a young age you know i wanted to act and dance i was a dancer all those things my parents were not at all into science or outdoorsy stuff they weren't hikers you know none of that um but when my father passed away when i was 19 which you know was very traumatic for me because we were very close I found myself um a week later back at college my sophomore year so you know went from funeral to school mm -hmm. within a week um, and just really sort of confused and lost and kind of unsatisfied with my life and where was I going. Everything just seemed very confusing at that point. And I happened to take um, a class very much like what I teach here at the university, which was this um, sort of forced upon me, you know, have to take science. What are you going to take? So I chose geology. Um, and it was in that class that I really started to discover that there were things out there 
that I just could not even believe that people could make their living scrambling <laughs> around in the Grand Canyon or on the sides of Mount Everest. And I thought, wow, this is, um, this is cool. You know, I wonder if I can do something like this. Uh, it was scary because I had, you know, really lapsed in my math. I hadn't taken AP science courses. I was mm. super behind. I was a sophomore. Um, but I remember going into the office of the department chair in the geology department at Syracuse University, who I'll remember to this day because she was amazing, and saying to her, hey, you know, I'm really into this class, um, but I have no math or science background at all, and I'm kind of scared of it, but can I be a geologist, do you think? And she was just like, do you want to? And absolutely, you know, you can. This is what you need to do. So I did. I just jumped in. I started taking calculus and physics and chemistry and all those things. Scared out of my wits, um, but it was the best decision I ever made because it opened every door, every door to my, you know, that's happened to me since is because I decided to be a scientist. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, those, those doors that open up when, when, because I have a, a similar experience. My, my father also died yeah. sophomore year of yeah. college and I was one week away from finals and wow. it, was, it was a music theory final. I remember yeah. that was what I was taking at the time, Yeah, which I was already kind of Sure. Yeah, I mean, I played instruments in school, but I was not a musical yeah. person per se. Yeah. yeah. And so I, you know, the same kind of thing. I, I was still doing my general ed courses at that time. I didn't take a, a different path at that point. I did yeah. it a little bit later. Yeah. But there's, yeah, that is that can really throw you for a loop at that stage. Yeah. yeah and at that time, I don't think I really fully appreciated how much. His death was doing something in my brain that where I was feeling dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I would have told you at that time. I got to do something different. You know, I still, I had a plan. I was going to be a journalist and a writer. And, you know, that was sort of where I was going. And I was happy with that. It wasn't that I was dissatisfied necessarily with the thought of being a writer. It was just that I was so, I think, so profoundly lost as a human um, that it was, it was like, it was ripe for the picking for something mm -hmm. to change, you know, and that just happened to be the thing that caught my attention. And for the first time I really was feeling, um, challenged and curious in a way that I hadn't felt in a long time because my classes would come, were coming easy to me, you know, English classes and mm -hmm. things. They were, I had been always been a good writer and I enjoyed writing. So none of that felt, I wasn't uncomfortable in any way. It was just sort of going along. And this was the first time I felt like, wow, this is really cool and I want to know more. And it's really difficult to learn more. And that's kind of okay. You know, that, that being in between sort of comfort and discomfort was, was felt okay at that moment. And um, it's something that I still think to this day is really important for people to find themselves in a position where they're a little uncomfortable but in a good way, mm -hmm. you know, I want to know more about that, but I don't quite understand. That's not a comfortable place to be necessarily, but it pushes you somewhere really amazing because you're going to get mm -hmm. there. You know, you're going to find a way to figure that out and to learn that. And that was something that came from science, you know, just that curiosity was there, was sparked and it was such a great feeling. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you, you obviously had a very creative bent. Yeah. And, and I feel like it's a false dichotomy maybe that you yeah. can either be artistic or you can be scientific, yeah. right? And then there's a creative underpinning to, yeah. to both. Yeah. You know, so how, how did your, and, and this actually connects to, to something we're gonna talk about in a bit, the yeah. podcast that yeah, you yeah, yeah. are gonna be starting yeah, soon. Sure. Um, but how, I mean, how did you feel like, because obviously you were going down a very creative road uh -huh. initially, how did you feel your scientific turn kind of scratched that creative itch. Yeah. Like how do you, how do you get there? How does, 
Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, I sort of had to let go of the creative part of me for a long time because I had to commit so fully to to the just the pure science because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I was really behind, you know, other people who had started as science majors, um, and so all of a sudden, you know, my GPA is dropping and things are difficult. And I'm so I really was putting all my time into the pursuit of learning the basics of science and the basics of how to do research, how to ask scientific questions, not realizing that that in itself is very creative. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at the world around you and coming up with what is the next question I want to ask and how am I going to get there? That's that's creative. You, you have to think about multiple things and put them together, sort of piece them together. What I've realized since then is that especially in geology, it is such a creative science in the sense that you're visualizing things that happened two or three or four billion years ago because of these little pieces of information, right, that we're teasing out of rocks or, you know, what we map or different things. And then we're sort of trying to, within that construct of science, create a narrative that is true, that makes sense, that fits all of those physical constraints, but tells a story about the Earth and what was happening. We, no one was there to see it happen. So... Um, in particular, I think ge uh, geology was a great place for me to go to be able to still feel like there was some creativity happening in my life in mm. some way. And then eventually getting to a point where I was comfortable with my work and now coming full circle and being back to writing, it took a long time to get there to feel like I could do that and have the time to do that. But again, if I hadn't become a geologist, I wouldn't have the stories to tell that I'm now writing about. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was really, again, being out of that my comfort zone that created all these great stories that were then, you know, then became a part of the things that I like to write about and talk about with people. So let's let's connect those two things. Yeah. So you've, um, I want to I want to hear more about your like what you do, your kind sure. of research, and because I I find I find that fascinating. I, I yeah. love detective stories, and yeah. I feel like that's the oldest, longest detective story there is. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, um, maybe the universe. I think a physicist, an astrophysicist well, yeah, okay. would say 14 billion years of universe history is a little bit longer, but that's it's all connected. That's a fair point. Yeah. But you can't dig into Jupiter it's right now. It's difficult. You can, you can dig that's in right. the backyard. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, t so tell me, like, that, you know, what your, what your research is right now, because, I, like I said, I find it fascinating. Um, and then, because you just mentioned writing, we can lead into... Uh, you're writing a book yeah or have written yeah a book or, or maybe somewhere between the two <laughs> written and edited and rewritten and yeah that's where i'm at um but so the research that i started in for my phd was all about it was it took place in tibet um so i got to work in southern tibet which is amazing so cool yes and that was i will say that um that trip to tibet in 1999 when i had never really camped or hiked or any of that before and now it was hey let's go to tibet for three and a half months and live at 15,000 feet in a tent um, with no running water and you're going to be the only woman on the trip um, and your advisor's not going and you know all of these things was really really scary and that was another one of these instances where I found myself in a position going I am not equipped for this but I really think I want to do it you and know that's, that's so great right um, <laughs> and so you know saying yes to that was really the jumping off point for my research and for what I do now, for who I am. I mean, everything about who I am really, I think, started culminating on that trip, discovering what I was capable of. Um, but that research was all about trying to figure out how the Tibetan plateau is formed over time. So it's it's the highest plateau on earth. It's the biggest plateau on earth. The Himalayas border it and they're the tallest, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mountains on earth. And people are fascinated by that place. 
for good reason. I mean, not just geologically, but geologically, it's the only place on Earth where we today have two continents still, you know, slamming into each other, basically colliding. And so that creates a situation that's very unique. It's a geologically unique situation that we can study and see happening today. So um, that number one was a great opportunity to go there. And then the research was really sort of, okay, so now we're going to focus on this one mountain range in southern Tibet where we have rocks that used to be about 15 kilometers deep are now exposed at the surface. They've been sort of tectonically um, exhumed or brought up to the surface. Um, And we can go in and we can collect them and study them and figure out how old they are and, and learn something about when these pieces of the Tibetan plateau were forming and how they came together and how they created this high topography. So that was really what my research was. And it was focused on using um, a radioactive uh, element, uranium, which turns into lead, and capturing um, uranium and lead out of these little tiny crystals, like little teeny tiny crystals in the rock that contain uranium and lead. And you can zap them with a beam of oxygen, basically, or a laser beam and extract those isotopes and measure them and figure out how long that rock has been around. It's crazy. It's, it's, my it's brain mind-blowing. was exploding this early in the morning. It's mind-blowing, yeah. And it's, <laughs> so it was really fun because I got to use like a big fancy machine that, you know, lots of people wanted to use and go in and zap these little grains and figure out how old they were. And along the way discovered that our ideas about that part of the world, we thought we knew pretty well how it formed. And we didn't, you know, you always learn something new and you start to dig in, get beneath the surface. So it was a lot of fun. And then in addition, you know, mapping, you've got a map in front of you at the time. You know, we didn't have GPS and we didn't have all those things, uh, cell phones and, you know, all that. So we had a paper topography map. <laughs> you would locate yourself on the map and make a mark with your pencil. And then you would <laughs> go to the next place and locate yourself. And you would sketch in, you know, where the boundaries were between rock types. And it was just loads of fun. And you learn a ton of ton of things about the earth. So today, um, I don't really, I do a little bit of that sort of peripherally with other scientists in my department. But my role in the research these days has become more about um, the broader impacts of the work and taking that work to the masses. So I'm really interested in bringing STEM and science and geology to everybody, making it accessible and making it um, something that maybe other people might want to do, especially young women. So um, that's sort of where I'm at today. Uh, I'm not running the samples in the lab very much anymore, that kind of thing, but I'm really, really interested in how do we, how do we communicate our science in a way that people understand it, find it interesting, aren't turned off by it, and how do we inspire more young people to, to take that risk and jump into STEM. Yeah, and science communication is so incredibly important. Yes. And it's so difficult. So difficult. Because <laughs> it's easy to, you know, it's easy, it's easy to explain some hard scientific research using the jargon and right. talking to people who already understand. You don't need to filter it. You don't need That's to right. distill it. Yeah. Know? But trying to explain it to someone who has no background right. whatsoever. And then you add in that we're in a time when science is under attack and there's a lot of questions about whether people things are real that scientists know are real you know climate change comes to mind and mm-hmm. the fact that we're in 2018 in a, in a literate you know uh, developed nation and we still have to try to convince people that something that scientists you know 97 percent of all scientists who study this say yes we have all the evidence it's real and people still question it um, so when you're, you're trying to not only explain the science to people who aren't scientists but maybe those people also already have a preconceived idea that what you're telling them isn't real mm-hmm. or isn't true um, and it can become very contentious and that's something that I think the scientific community hasn't quite yet figured out 
how to overcome. We tend to just go back to our facts because that's where we're comfortable that's, yeah. and that's what we know. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard for us to believe that there's any other way to sort of convey the information. I actually took a workshop about this, about science communication through the um, Alan Alda Center. They came to campus last year and they did a workshop and it was fascinating. It was I learned a lot about um, you know, where you start from, where you're coming from when you're trying to communicate. And it could be any topic, but especially mm -hmm. science makes a, a huge difference. And trying, you know, trying to connect with people on a human level first is something that I don't think all of us think about doing. We just come in hot with our ideas and we're like, <laughs> I know I'm right. And this is all my evidence and I'm just going to lay it out and they're going to believe me mm -hmm. and it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. There's, um, it makes me think there's a few podcasts that I, I think I feel like there's currently like a devaluation of facts. Yeah. Right. The facts aren't aren't worth what they used to sure. be worth. Sure. Now. And that's why I love podcasts like you know the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe mm -hmm. and Talk Nerdy to Me and uh, my favorite one, uh, No Such Thing as a Fish, which is the the writers from QI, the oh, show okay. quite interesting yeah, on yeah, BBC. Yeah. yeah. They have a podcast that they just they're four favorite facts from the past seven days and they talk about them they just go off on rants and stuff but yeah. it's you learn so much right but only if you appreciate the fact that these things are Factual. demonstrably true right <laughs> you know, yeah. that you can trust it yes um because when you go into it on already thinking i'm not sure about this right you know i don't trust that person yep I, you're, the conversation's over already right yeah right um, and that's the point is we have to figure out how to trust yeah. each other exactly yeah and you know we're I think sometimes when people say, you know, or they, they distrust authority, distrust scientists, yeah. experts mm -hmm. on, across any field. Any field. Um, it makes me think, don't you think the people, like, that's their lives, sure. that's their careers, that's their reputation. Sure. Do you think they would lie to you yeah. when other people are just, you know, want their position or want to be more famous or more well-known or yeah. better known for their thing than they right. are? Right. They're probably going to jump on them and say, ah, wrong. Right, right, right. <laughs> Which is why science is peer-reviewed. I mean, that's the mm -hmm. other thing that I think a lot of people who aren't in the world of STEM don't understand is that when you are a PhD, when you are uh, publishing papers, when you're a professor, you know, all of these things come with requirements, and that is that your work is rigorously reviewed mm -hmm. by other people in your field and in fields related to yours. And so you can't just write a paper about something that you think is true without any supporting facts and evidence and um, information that other people then look at and scrutinize. And it's almost nearly uh, never happens that you put in something in the first round, it comes back and goes, yep, that's perfect, yeah. publish it. <laughs> People come back and say, wait, how do you know that? Wait, that data doesn't quite make sense. Mm -hmm. Rethink that, redo that, you know, look at this. And so it is a, it's a grueling process to even get the information out there. And so the fact that so many people who work on climate science have come to these same conclusions and all of these things have been peer reviewed by people all over the world. You know, this is not a conspiracy theory. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, it's, it's hard as a scientist to see that. Um, but, you know, truthfully, I don't deal with that as much as some other people do because I'm not really in the heart of that, of the mm -hmm. client science, science debate. But I do teach climate change as part of my survey course to non-science majors. And one thing that is really... Um, encouraging is that a lot of my students, a lot of this, the, the uh, generation of college students today, they have grown up in a climate change world. Mm -hmm. They don't know anything else, right? So they are much more open 
um, to these ideas. And most of them, I'd say the majority of them do believe that this is a problem, that it's true, that it's real, and that we should be thinking about it. So that's really encouraging. I often think that maybe believe isn't even the right word. Right. Like you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't believe that's right. in a fact. You can't. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's facts. You, you can right. you trust it. Right. You, know, you can trust that this thing is true. Right. You know, I believe. Yeah this, that, or the other, but right. I know that the sun is going to, right. you know, that the right. earth is going to rotate and the sun's going to show up over there tomorrow. You know, right. I don't need to believe that. Right. But if, you know, so I feel like in that broader conversation, I feel a lot often that word, yeah. whenever I hear that, I just kind of cringe like, oh, that's. Unfortunately, it's there. It's part of the yeah, conversation. Yeah. So you kind of go there naturally, but yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so let's, let's, how did that bring you to, uh, oh, I wanted to mention real quick, um, yeah. you were, you were talking about Tibet. Yeah. Um, my wife is from Bolivia, yeah. which I mentioned earlier. Sure. Um, and I visited there with her a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and I had never even been out of the country. Oh, like, wow. I went to Ohio. I've been to Hawaii, so I'd been over an ocean, kind right. of, but I'd never been to a different country. Sure. Which is kind of embarrassing, because um, I was in my early 30s by the time I actually left the United States. But yeah. anyway, um, we went to La Paz, we yeah. were in Oruro, mm-hmm. and she told me how high they are. Mm-hmm. She told me what the elevation was, mm-hmm. and I was like, I, I understood it as a number. Yeah. But not as a experience, right? <laughs> you know? Right. So fifteen thousand feet. I yeah. mean, we were at like thirteen. Yeah. And that was bad enough. Yeah. I, I would lose my breath. Yeah. Washing my face in the shower. Yeah. Just holding my just. You know, I Absolutely. Have to move my head away and go. Yeah. <gasps> of course. <laughs> same, yeah. Same. I can't imagine. Yeah. Three months, you said. Three and a half months. At fifteen thousand feet. Close to. I mean, so we started. You know, you start. You spend a week or so in Lhasa, which is the capital city, and mm-hmm. it's about. About 12,000, which is still pretty darn high. But, you you know, you spend three, four days there just acclimating. There's really not much you can do except yeah. take a little walk and then go crash on your bed with a headache and <laughs> hope that you don't throw up. Um, and it feels that way for several days, you know, pounding mm-hmm. head and all of those things. But the thing about altitude is that if you do go slowly, if you take your time and, you, you know, um, going to higher altitude... Mm-hmm. You acclimate at each step. This is why people who climb Everest have all these different camps where they spend multiple days to try to let their body acclimate. It works better for some people than others. You know, our metabolisms are all different. And so some people have a really hard time and others are okay. Um, But once we got out into the field, it was, you know, somewhere between you know, 14 and 16 on a regular basis is where we were camping. You know, that's your base elevation. Right. And then you go out during the day and you're hiking into these little mountain ranges to collect rocks. And so um, one of my favorite stories to tell was my very first week out in the field. Again, not a camper, not a hiker. <laughs> we're out there. We set up a camp. And the second day we decided we were going to go after this rock that was up in a it's a kind of a bowl-shaped depression in the side of a mountain that's been ripped out by a glacier. So it's, it's called a cirque, and the ice has sort of carved it out. And it leaves this beautiful, you know, exposure of rocks where you can kind of see and you can grab samples. So we wanted to go there. We were looking for a particular rock that we really wanted to find. But where we were headed was at about 18,000 feet elevation. So it's our first week in the field, second day wow. doing work. Um, we were camping at maybe 14 and a half then, something like that. Um, and you know, the guys I was with who were also graduate students in geology, oh no, this will be fine. You know, we'll do it. It's not a big deal. So we <laughs> like, did. Like I felt. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, okay. Whatever. So we go, you know, it was a crazy day just getting up there. We made it. Um, but you know, the next day I was horribly altitude sick and I had never experienced anything like that where you really just like every cell in your body feels like it's on high alert, mm-hmm. you know, um, everything hurt. It was you couldn't stay still, but when you, it hurt to move, um, you know, just horrible nausea, pounding headaches. Um, there are medications you can take, but they make your fingers and toes 
tingle. And so your, your extremities are tingling. It's just a strange, scary, weird feeling. And trying to do um, little tests and take samples. And well, that stuff. day we just stayed in the tent because oh, okay. we, I mean, we were all sick, you know, and we went, okay, that was a mistake. Like, we shouldn't have done that. Um, but, you know, after a month or two out there, it, it felt like I was anywhere else, honestly. Hmm. Um, by the end of that three and a half months, you know, I was able to jog. <laughs> I would, you know, jog along <laughs> an outcrop or something and, and not really feel that much different than I did at home at sea level. Um, and then you get back to sea level and you uh, feel amazing, right? Because you're totally, your body is acclimated to like no oxygen. <laughs> I felt like I had to chew my air. Yes. I, it felt so I went thick. From, from yeah. the pause to, yeah. um, oh, where did we stop? Santa Cruz. Yeah. I got in Santa Cruz and it's yeah. like 400 feet above sea level. Yeah. I, was, it, I felt yeah. like I had to. Like, yeah, like the air was crunchy. Yeah. Like I couldn't breathe into it. Yeah, it was crazy. yeah, yeah. Um, and just to, to give people perspective, you know, because a lot of, like you say, you don't really, you can't sort of fathom what that elevation is if yeah. you've never been there. So where we are today in Tucson is about 2,500 feet above mm -hmm. sea level. Um, you know, so in LA at the beach, you're at sea level and we're at about 2,500 feet. Um, if you go to Denver, right, it's a mile high city. So it's around 5,000 feet. And then you go up from there. So 15,000 feet is a big deal. Um, big deal. It's, it's a big change. And some people, you know, um, they go to Denver and they have headaches and they feel out of breath. So um, it is something that is um, an experience that I'll never forget. And it was part of why I was so afraid to go. You know, mm -hmm. I might die over there. I've never been to high elevation. You know, I, I like you, I wasn't a big traveler. I mean, I'd been out of the country, but to cities, <laughs> you know, I wasn't like going to the tops of mountains and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was, it was a big deal. And you've wrapped all these things up, your your trip and your process and, yeah. and all that into we were kind of we were starting to talk about your book. Yeah, yeah. I about maybe eight or nine years ago, um, I was looking back through. I kept a journal when my first time to Tibet in 1999. My mom gave me a journal, and she was like, you know, you might want to record some of this <laughs> stuff because she knew like right. this is crazy. And she would say to me, why are you doing this? It's insane. But um, so I have this journal, and because I had been a writer, it made sense to me. I liked to write. And so at the end of each day, I would come back to the tent at night and I would get in my sleeping bag and I would open that journal and I would just jot down the things that I had experienced that day or seen. Um, and almost all of them were unbelievable because they right. were just, it was so out of my norm, you know, not only high elevation and these beautiful geological things, but also the culture, you know, being in a, in a, um, a culture that's so different from ours, um, was new to me because I'd only really ever been to Europe. And so it just was, everything was different. So I wrote, you know, every night, every single night. And so about eight or nine years ago, I was, um, I was, laying in my bed one night and I was going through my nightstand looking for something and I found that journal and I was like, oh wow, there's my Tibet journal. I pulled it out and I started reading it and I went, you know what, this is um, pretty cool. Like there's some stories in here that need to be told and um, people had asked me before, why didn't you write a book about your Tibet journey? Because the pictures, I would show people pictures and they go, oh my gosh, you know, and they'd want to know more. So I just, I started typing, you know, I just started writing things down and, and eventually it, it, made its way into what it is today, which is really more not, um, it's not an armchair travel book where it's just the observations from Tibet, but it morphed into how did I get there in the first place? Like, how did this even happen? Which is what we talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, and so now it's really a memoir about, you know, me and what happened to me with my dad passing, how that changed me, how I found geology, went to Tibet, how that changed my life. And then sort of culminating in the person I am today and how important it is that I am a scientist and what that means to me as a woman, I think is also a big part of the book. 
Um, which, so there you have it. <laughs> which is a, a great little transition into um, kind of a free plug. Yeah, <laughs> right. So uh, you have a podcast that you're just getting off the ground. Just getting off the ground. And I'm so excited about that. Yeah. Because I, I never thought that I would get past 20 episodes. And sure. here we are. This is... This is actually going to go out um, on Tuesday. Oh, wow. Tuesday. Today's Tuesday. Yeah. Thursday. Thursday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if, uh, if I can get it all taken sure. care of and whatnot. Um, and that'll be episode 26 awesome. of mine. Yeah. So I'm really, really excited when people want to start doing this because yeah. I've, I've had so much fun doing it. Yeah. Um, and before we get into sure. I'm, uh, you know, t- tell me a little bit about essentially what it is, but I love the, the title yeah. and where that came from. That yes. just bowled me over when you told me oh, good. The, the source of that title. Cause I'm yes. like, what? Well, we talked a little <laughs> bit um, before the show about titles and how, <laughs> and I still haven't picked a title for my book. I mean, this is one of the hardest things you do when you create mm-hmm. something is to attach a label to it because then you so feel, difficult. oh my God, we're stuck forever with this title. It, it is a commitment. It's, it's definitely a commitment. A commitment. It's yeah. a commitment. And it's the first thing people hear. It's the first mm-hmm. thing people see when they're searching and looking for things. And so you want it to appeal to a broad number of people, but at the same time, it has to convey something that's important to you. I think it should mm-hmm. connect with you personally in some way. Um, and you told me your story about new professor, which mm-hmm. I found fascinating because I had no idea you started it when you were a new professor, yeah. right? Um, and all of the things that that can mean. Um, but so, you know, I had many iterations of title for this, but I landed on um, the title Plucky Ladies. And the word plucky um, for me has a lot of meaning because, I mean, the definition of that word is, is you know, sort of courage in the, in the face of hardship and, you know, being tough and working through things and, you know, which is a great, I think, lesson for all of us mm-hmm. that that's really important in life in many different ways. But it's particularly important to me because um, being told I was plucky, the first time I ever heard that term. <laughs> I, can't, I still can't get over this. Right. I was a graduate <laughs> student um, and I was meeting with my advisor. Now, just mind you, as a graduate student in geology at UCLA, which is a pretty competitive place, and having the self-esteem issues I already had, losing my father and being in science when I didn't think I could do science. Um, and I now granted, I had already done science. I had a bachelor's degree mm-hmm. and a master's degree, and I still was like, why am I here? What am I doing? This is too difficult for me. And um, you know, then to be told to be in the office of your advisor and having a conversation and have him sort of out of the blue make this comment that, well, you're not that smart, but you're plucky, you know? Okay. So your reaction right there, the, oh, was my reaction because all I heard Mm -hmm. in that moment was you're not that smart, which really hurt. I mean, it made me feel like I shouldn't be here. This is terrifying, but I didn't hear that the compliment part, which was that you're plucky. And he actually said, you know, it'll take you far in this, in in academia. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I honestly don't think that he was trying to be mean, I think that he was trying to make the point that you don't have to be a genius <laughs> to be successful in academia. And I think that that applies to pretty much anything you do in life. Mm-hmm. I mean, the vast majority of us were not gifted with natural talent in some way. Like we just, you're not born to be, you know, a maestro piano player. I mean, very few people are right. Um, 
And those people, great, they should go off and do those things, and that's amazing. But the rest of us have to dig in and work really hard. (laughs) Not to say that talented people don't work. I know that they do. But um, a lot of us aren't, you know, we don't have that natural ability sometimes. Maybe we do, but it's not in the field that we want to pursue. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's easy to say, well, you know, I'm not good at math or science, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what comes easy to me, which is, you know, whatever it is. I'll be an English major or I'll be this or that. Um, or maybe I don't have really natural musical ability, but I really want to learn how to play the guitar. You know, why shouldn't you do that? It's going to take hard work. It's going to take pluck. And so now looking back, I feel like that was such an incredible compliment (laughs) and how, um, how wonderful it is to be plucky and to have people recognize, oh, well, you know, you work hard and you get to where you want to go because you work hard. Mm -hmm. Even if it's difficult, you do it. And so, Plucky Ladies is really about, I want to talk to women about the things they've had to overcome in their lives, the things they've done that maybe were difficult, but got them somewhere where they wanted to go or maybe changed their life. Times in their life that maybe they said yes to something that was scary and how that changed their lives or made them figure out who they were. Um, I think we all go through this at some point in our life where we have to ask ourselves the question, is this really what I want to be doing? Mm-hmm. Can I do that? Uh, what what am I going to have to sacrifice to get there to do that? And um, and I think it's easy to say no to those things, you know? And I think where, but where the real most important things in your life come from are when you say yes to those things. And you did a TED Talk or a TEDx Talk. Called Saying Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which is not going to be available when this goes out, but when it, it is, right. I will add it to the show notes. That's awesome. <laughs> so yes. everybody can watch it. Yes. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> We've been waiting a while to get um, the links up, but um, it turns out it's a really complicated process because it has to go through TED themselves, the main um, guys. And so, you know, that's you have to wait and that's fine. Um, but yeah, I did this back in February here on campus. It was the first um, U of A TEDx. And my talk was called, right, well, you know, because you wouldn't, I mean, we tried to advertise it, but it, you know, it only goes so far if you're not looking for it. But, um, my talk was called saying yes, taking risks in pursuit of self-discovery. And it was all about saying yes to Tibet, um, and what that meant for me and how it changed my life. And so I, you know, I really, my goal with the podcast, with the talk, with the book, it's really just to sort of inspire people, but especially young women, because I do still think we're at a disadvantage, you know, young women um, in this country, to not think about your limitations so much or not think about what is the path that makes the most sense. Sometimes it's the stuff that doesn't make the most sense that really takes you to places you never thought you could go and you discover what you're capable of, but also what you're passionate about. Um, And sometimes that means you have to say to mom and dad, I don't want to major in business. You know, yes, I'll get a job but I'm really passionate about anthropology or I'm really interested in fashion or I really want to be a dancer. (laughs) You know, I met, I met a young woman once who came to U of A. Um, she was from my hometown and she was here in the dance program. And she told me that when she was thinking about college and where to go and what to do, it never occurred to her that she could go to college as a dance major. She had been dancing her whole life and it was her favorite thing in the world to do. And luckily, it was, I think it was her parents who said to her, well, you could major in dance. It's possible. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's possible, <laughs> yeah, and you can yeah. make, do, make a life around that. But Absolutely. I think for a lot of people, these choices may seem scary because they're not practical. Mm-hmm. Maybe it seems not practical. That's. I mean, I got that. Yeah. Well, kind of. I mean, yeah. I, I, I initially was an English major. Yeah. And I was like, well, I guess I'll teach. Yeah. Because, you know, I go, what, what am I going to do with an English degree? I'll teach English, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then, you know, 20 years later, I find myself teaching in a cyber operations program and right. 
talking about augmented reality and stuff like that. So right. Is a, I was reading Shakespeare in, in college. Yes. Yeah. And that, me too. When I started as an English major, my backup plan was if I don't get into the communication school, which was top notch and really mm. difficult to get into and become a journalist, I can still be an English teacher and I can write on the side and, you know, all of those, which is great. That's a fine pursuit. I'm not saying, saying negative <laughs> about that. Um, but for me, it was just the fact that it had gotten too stagnant. It was almost too, you know, everything was very even keel and easygoing and, you know, you're getting straight A's, which is great, but, oh, what am I really getting out of this? Like, I'm going to read another book that I've already read and, you know, all these things. Um, and that was geology was that little spark that I needed to sort of say, there are things out there that you know nothing about that are going to blow your mind. And don't you want to get into that? And yeah, I did want to get into that. And it was, it did blow my mind in the best of ways. And you want to talk to specifically other women mm -hmm. that have done kind of the same thing. And you told me about the, one of the people yeah. you're going to have on, and I don't want to drop any spoilers or anything. Well, I can the, tell you that she, the reason I asked my first guest to be on is because she's fascinating. She has a very difficult, unusual background and still was able to follow her passion through a very tough route and now making her living at her passion, which is a passion that is not normally thought of as a way to make a living. Right? <laughs> so that's, that was what drew me to her. Um, but yes, I'm seeking out um, other women, maybe in STEM, but not necessarily. Um, my first guest is an artist. She's right. not a, a scientist. But um, I know a lot of women in the science community who... Um, have done things that you wouldn't necessarily picture a woman, you know, leaning out of a helicopter to collect lava samples or, you know, spending three months in Antarctica in a tent, you know, studying whatever they're studying. I mean, <laughs> women do all of the same things that men do um, in terms of things that seem very physically dangerous and difficult and risky and intellectually, right, difficult. Mm. Um, and so I really want to bring to light um, to help inspire other young women, I want to bring to light the fact that women are doing amazing things and it isn't always easy and how did they get there? So that's really what I want to focus on with Plucky Ladies is sort of, and the tagline is, okay, so just to get, <laughs> because you need to send, so like what am I going to hear when Absolutely. I listen to, a lot of people might see that title and go, I don't even know what Plucky means. <laughs> and so it's tales of female um, curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. And so that's really, I want to get at what were you curious about? What sparked your passion? How did you get there? That's the perseverance piece. And what are you doing now? That's excellent in your life. So that's sort of where it's going to go. I hope. That expert level yeah. tagline. Right I love that's it. Perfect. Right. <laughs> Thank you. And so, you know, I'll put the plug out there too, for women who are listening, if you're a professor here or you're not, it doesn't matter. You mm -hmm. know, if you've got a story to tell, get in touch with me. Cause I'm looking for ladies share their stories. Let's <laughs> so, so, so make sure that we add the share their stories. Share their stories. That. That's right. Don't edit that part out. <laughs> um, so it's, it's um, how did, how would they go about contacting you if they wanted to get involved? So there's several ways. Um, they can just email me at my university email, which is jcap at email.arizona.edu. They can find me on the geosciences website. I have my own webpage there. Um, and there's my email address is there. They can also, I have my own website, which is jesscap.com. Um, and on there you can send me email um, and it'll have, you know, it has my Twitter on there. So you can tweet at me and, you know, there's lots of ways to do it. Mm. Um, and I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear people's stories. You know, any, anyone who's got a story to tell, send me an email, tell me your pitch. And I'm, I'm happy to, <laughs> to talk to you. Cause I just think, I also feel like there's so many people out there with these amazing stories. Like when you and I first met mm -hmm. at a fellows lunch, 
we wouldn't have known that we had in common that our fathers died when we were 19 and we wouldn't have known, you wouldn't have known I'd ever been to Tibet and lived in a tent. I would never have known, you know, what you were doing. And so this is the way that we learn about other people is to have them tell their stories. And Mm -hmm. I find when I hear a story like this from another woman, I'm inspired, you know, it makes me want to keep going and learning new stuff and doing new things because of the amazing things people are doing. So that's what I'm hoping it will be. I have no doubt that it will. I hope so. <laughs> I think it'll, and entertaining. I'm sure it'll be fantastic. And it'll I hope it'll be entertaining and interesting as well. Because people playing? are interesting. Oh yeah, well. Yeah. People are fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with you with you at the home, I think it'll be just fine. Well thanks. <laughs> and you're gonna be doing it probably right here. Right here, I hope so. Right yeah. Here in Harville. Here in Harville. <laughs> Harville's gonna become the location the for the home. legend of <laughs> podcasts. That's right. So we'll be doing it here and um, I will be posting it to whatever site we use here, but also my own, you know, my website, Mm -hmm. Geosciences website. So I'll try to push it out in in several different ways to get it out to people. And you have just for reference, like a basic timeline when you're, when you're hoping to get it out there to begin with. Well, so my hope is we're going to record our first one next week. And so my hope is that the first episode will go out, if not next week, then the following week. So sometime in that first or second week of October is when the first episode. And then, you know, I think at the beginning, if I can get one episode a month done, that'll be good. But I would love at some point for it to become a weekly thing, but it's going to take time because I got to find all the people Mm -hmm. (laughs) right now. I think I have three lined up. So that wouldn't even get me through a first month. No. So it, it takes time. It takes time. It takes a lot of work. And we'll see how many people are interested. You know, if nobody listens to it, then maybe it's not worth no. <laughs> trying I've, to find I, more people. But yeah. I, I don't look at audience. I don't, yeah. I don't look at metrics or anything like sure, that. I, sure. I do it because I have fun that's doing right, it. That's right. That's right. There is people a tell me they like it. Absolutely. That's all there is. To that's it. all I there really is. Like yep. That's right. Less traffic means less I have to pay for the bandwidth. That's sure. Right. That's there you I go. Say. That's true. <laughs> Okay, well, Jess, I think we have uh, rattled on long enough, and I think the trolley's going to come by and ding us pretty soon. Oh, so right. I think we'll probably, we'll probably wrap this up. So thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you, you for know, having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Um, so another plug for Jess's podcast, Plucky Ladies. Yeah. And I, like I said, I'll put everything in the show notes, and as things roll out, yeah. I will continue to add it. Awesome. Um, and I will be as much of a tremendous voice for you as I possibly can. And I for you. This has been wonderful. <laughs> and uh, I always love sitting down with a fellow U of A person and having a chat. And a fellow fellow. At and that. a fellow fellow. That's right. <laughs> Caitlin, <laughs> plug for the fellows. That? Yep. Plug that's, for the fellows. <laughs> that's, for, that's for you, Caitlin. All right. Thanks for having <laughs> Thanks, me. <Jess. laughs>